Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Art Blog Radio. I'm Roberta, co-founder and editor of Art Blog, and I'm very excited to have with me this morning Justin Favela. Hello, Justin. It's great to see you. Hi. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Oh, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. I want to uh, give Justin a little bit of introduction to our people that don't know his art and who he is. Justin Favela is a nationally known queer Latinx artist based in his hometown of Las Vegas, but travels widely doing installations that we'll talk about later. Right now, he's got a show called Fresh Cut Fruit at Philadelphia's Paradigm Gallery, and that's up till May 8th, and I want to encourage everyone to go see the show. Highly, highly recommended. Justin works with installation, performance, and piñatas, yes, piñatas, which he makes in political caricatures, that's sort of what I would call them, of the classic Mexican birthday party piñatas, but they're critical. They are not supportive of Western culture's use of these piñatas. So critical of Western culture, and they're beautiful in their crafting and really great to look at. So run over to Paradigm now for this chance to see them. So anyway, welcome. And that was a long introduction. So let's hear some of you now. And I want to talk about food. So you have a food-themed show. Tell us about how that came along and tell us what inspires you to make your art about food. Well, I think that a lot of times, especially in the United States, an icebreaker, kind of an entry point to other people's culture is their food. And I realized that at a really young age, as a Latinx American, right, my my mom's Guatemalan, my dad's Mexican, and it's this thing that's really fun to talk about, but it's also for people of color, it's, it could be a microaggression, right? You meet an Indian person and you start talking about curry with them. They're more than curry, right? And like Latinos are more than tacos and rice and beans. So in my art, I always play with that kind of dichotomy of like celebration and exploitation or, you know, these things that, seem really fun but are also deep-seated in racism and white supremacy right and so a lot of my work is about about taking hold of the narrative and saying okay well i don't know why people are asking me about tacos and burritos all the time but i'm gonna really lean into it and investigate this and just become kind of this hyper version of somebody that talks about tacos and Mexican food. So I started making a lot of art in the style almost of like Klaus Oldenburg, like really giant food sculptures to point out kind of the ridiculousness of it because that's what Oldenburg did too, is like, wow, we can't believe Americans eat so much. Their serving sizes are huge, right? And so for me, uh, referencing food in my work, it, it, it opens up, the floor for conversation uh, about authenticity, but then also about kind of the ridiculousness of kind of pinning that on a certain identity. And so, um, yeah, so you can see from, from my answer to the question, there's so much to talk about when it comes 
to food and it's really a jumping off point. So my podcast, Latinos Who Lunch, it was about food, but it was much more than that. It was about art. It was about politics. It was about, you know, these intersections of like race, gender and privilege. Yeah, no, I love those podcasts. And let's just clear up one thing that I was not 100% certain of, but I think you've closed that project. The podcast is it's an archive now. They're still available, right? Yes, yes. We have five years of that podcast for free online. Wonderful. Uh, you can go to latinoswholunch.com. Yeah, it's great. Do it. I. It's a lot of laughing, but really, <laughs> and it's bilingual. So there was stuff that I didn't understand, but a lot I did. And I loved it. I just love it. And you talk with your, it sounds like he was your teacher, possibly your art historian friend, Emmanuel Ortega. Yeah. He, I mean, officially he was never my teacher, but I, I ended up taking classes after I graduated from school because when I went to school, there was no Mexican art history classes offered. So, oh my God, you're kidding. No. And so I, I met him through a friend, uh, maybe one or two years after I graduated. And he said, yeah, you can come and sit on my class, you know, take my classes. You can just, you know, hang out, maybe buy me lunch once in a while. And uh, (laughs) that's what, that's what started the podcast, our conversations at lunch. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So they actually started as Latinos at lunch. You were lunching. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's fun. That's fun. Well, one thing as you've been talking here, I want to talk about, Taco Bell. Oh, yeah. Now, that seems like the classic capitalistic appropriation, if there ever was one. So, yeah. what do you think? <laughs> um, well, I know that for, for Latinos, for Chicanos, right, the Taco Bell is, is very inauthentic Mexican food. And so, I, you know, I like to, <laughs> I like to kind of, poke fun at, at at people that are Taco Bell haters because there's this yeah there's this really strong notion about what is authentically Mexican and I think that's dangerous because Mexico is such a vast country when it comes to the different types of cuisine within the regions of Mexico that Mexican food is so much more than just one thing Right. If you're eating food in northern Mexico, you're talking flour tortillas, a lot of beef, a lot of red salsa, right? A lot of really spicy food. And then if you head down south towards, let's say, Oaxaca, corn tortillas, you're getting there's a lot of mezcal down there. Um, they are doing things with quesadillas that I could have never imagined in my life. And there's, of <laughs> course, mole and all these different. So Mexican food is very very diverse. And Taco Bell is just part of the story. It's this industrialized, Americanized, bastardized version of Mexican food um, that is connected to Tex-Mex. And I remember when I was a kid, my parents and my, you know, my family members kind of turning their nose up at Tex-Mex, like, why is there so much sour cream on that food? Or, you know, like, (laughs) that's not even spicy or that's not nachos, chimichangas. That's not real food. And um, I actually got to do this kind of research project slash installation with the Houston Center of Contemporary Craft a few years back, where we really got to dive into the histories of the food. And what I realized was like Tex-Mex is authentic 
to Texas. It's authentically Tex-Mex and it is Mexican food. A lot of that food was invented on the border by Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, right? And so Taco Bell is kind of an extension of that. And I always like to say Taco Bell is my favorite Mexican restaurant just to piss people off. Uh, (laughs) But it gives me the opportunity to talk about kind of these histories in the mid-century, like mid-20th century, that's when Glenn Bell really started to like industrialize the taco shell with the hard shell taco. And when after he opened up Taco Bell and that led to the globalization of Mexican food, much like the globalization of like Chinese and Thai food in the 50s, like it's not really Chinese food. It's the American version of it. But, you know, you go to the UK, places in Europe and you go to Mexican restaurants and a lot of times you're eating American style Mexican food. Right. So. Taco Bell really did lead to the globalization of Mexican food and started introducing it everywhere. And now I I actually got to go to Ireland a few years ago and I went to a Mexican restaurant expecting Tex-Mex and Taco Bell. But now people are a little bit more savvier. You know, the Internet has made the world a little bit smaller. And so I was in Ireland eating like authentic to me, right? Like, I, I hate saying authentic, but it felt like I was eating in a taco spot in, in East LA. It was like very like genuinely good Mexican food. And that that is thanks to Glenn Bell and and the introduction of the of the industrial taco shell, right? They're the ones that introduced the food to other places. And now the story kind of continues, which I find interesting. Yeah. And it's like, could it have happened any other way? Because now with the internet, it might have, it might have been brought by you to Ireland instead of, you know, having a show and talking about food and whatnot and not authentic, but uh, Mexican food and Tex-Mex and whatnot. Also the food at Taco Bell is developed by scientists to be, to just hit every part of your palate to have the exact right temperature texture it's like one of the best i think next to maybe chipotle it's probably one of the best like in, chipotle and panda express it's one of some of the best engineered food out there since the dorito <laughs> are you being ironic i i no. can't really tell <laughs> no i'm not i'm, I'm being so serious <laughs> Okay. You you must go on a tour of the uh, flavor factories in New Jersey. You know, I think they have these things. New Jersey is full of flavor factories where they just sit there and they do this, the scientists. Oh my gosh. I love that. (laughs) So let's um, segue back to your show and your art. I would love to talk more food with you and we Mm -hmm. can come back to that. But um, the one question if you could just describe one of the pieces for me, which one I really liked that I saw online in the show is Fruits of the Tropics after Courier and Ives. So that one is like extraordinary to me. So what inspired it and what does it look like? We'll get a picture of it from the gallery, but just describe what it shows. Yeah, so the exhibition at Paradigm Gallery is all based on uh, a friend's book, Dr. Shana Klein, 
Fruits of the Empire. And I, I was just fascinated by this book. She takes the history uh, or untold histories, I should say, about the representation of fruit in art, in media, at, in the 19th century mostly, um, and talks about how it really influenced the way that we ate food and what food we did eat here in the United States. And so there was a time when bananas, oranges, watermelon, those were exotic fruit here in the United States, and people were afraid to eat them or they just weren't used to eating them. So the piece that you're that you're referencing, um, I think it was originally made in Philadelphia too, which is so cool um, mm. to have that connection. And also the the United States Centennial celebration was in Philly, and uh, there was a huge orange display in that. So there's also oranges uh, referenced in the Fresh Cut Fruit exhibit because of that. I wanted to tie it to Philly in that way too. But anyway, back to the lithograph that you mentioned, it's this just beautiful, almost like a cornucopia kind of still life of all of this fruit. And of course, the actual lithograph is very detailed. And and I like to make these paintings to scale. And once I start cutting up the tissue paper to make it, it kind of the image kind of gets distorted and pixelated. So when you're looking at the pinata painting based on that on that famous lithograph it is pixelated it is uh what i think i'm doing is kind of highlighting how those histories have been distorted and erased over time and how now you know myself and different artists are kind of reinterpreting and uncovering those same histories in this way so the gesture of making things pinata to me is to kind of highlight the not only celebrate the work, right? Because that's very obvious, celebrating it with something colorful and fun and festive, but also investigating it and and really, you know, cutting it up and trying to get to these, you know, little untold stories and really highlight kind of like the commodification of these images. And and I never would have thought that these fruit still lifes that inspired the show had so much meaning until I really started digging in because, you know, we're just so used to having all of this exotic fruit around the, uh, around 12 months a year in the grocery stores. But let me tell you, the, the more I dug into pineapple production and banana production, there was a lot, a lot of histories that were that are not told and pr frankly, probably hidden because they're very violent to make sure that we have bananas for our smoothies every morning. Right. Um, so yeah. So this show is just that a celebration, but also uh, a re-entry into those histories. Yeah. I want to say, and this is just apropos of uh -huh. nothing that we just talked about. It looks to me like you're sitting in a studio and I see <laughs> shelves of paper in back of you, different colored paper. Is that what I'm seeing? Yeah, this is, I mean, we're in my storage room. This is my paper storage room. <laughs> okay. All right. I have the best acoustics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as many closets actually do. <laughs> yeah. I'm back in the closet. It's Thanksgiving all over again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, okay, well, so let's talk about the commercial gallery aspect of the show and the livability of 
this work in people's homes. It's very yeah. delicate, I would think. So yeah. does it come with like conservation instructions on, do you put it under glass or what do you tell people? Yeah, well, um, it is it is tissue paper. So it is sensitive to light. Uh, I will say I try to get, I get high grade tissue paper. So a lot of the paintings that I've made have stood the test of time, uh, well, at least for the last 10 years when I've been making them. But there is ways to preserve the work if you want it to last longer. Uh, obviously, putting it in a place that does not receive direct sunlight is the best for the work. Um, but then, yeah, if people are really concerned about the work maybe getting wet or fading or, you know, it's almost a three-dimensional I mean, it comes off, it can come off the wall a few inches if it's fluffy, you know? And so <laughs> there have been a lot of collectors that put them in shadow boxes, which uh, actually mm -hmm. I really love. It looks, because it makes it more of an object, which mm -hmm. is which is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, where there's a will, there's a way, you know, that that was a big hurdle that I had to, had to kind of jump across when I first started making these works because people were afraid to buy them. And then I had the... That same trip that I went to Ireland, I got to go to Paris. And uh, when I was a kid, Picasso was one of my favorite artists. So I wanted to go to the, the Picasso Museum in Paris. And I went there and I noticed that I was in this gallery and all of the paintings in this gallery by Picasso were on cardboard. And so I thought to myself, I don't want to hear another person tell me that making stuff on cardboard isn't acceptable, you know? And, uh, and so I thought, yeah, that's true. And then I started noticing when I went to other museums, like, oh yeah, this artwork from the 19, you know, from the early uh, 1900s is on newsprint and it's being preserved. Right. So yeah, there's different ways to make sure that the work uh, is safe. And, but you know what, I, I kind of embrace the fading of the paper a little bit more than I used to because now that I have work that's 10 years old and I look at it, it still it still holds up and it becomes kind of part of the painting. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a nice way to think about it. Yeah. It it goes along with its objectness. You know, you can, yes. you want to hold on to objects for a long time. You don't want to let them go. And so it but it will change. So you just go with the change. Exactly. It's like a body changing over time. You know, you're not going to get rid of your friends because their bodies change. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have experience working at all kinds of museums over the years. I, I you know, being from Las Vegas, uh, there's not a lot of like direct like art jobs, but there's a lot of weird kind of jobs. And one of my jobs uh, was uh, helping with the archive at the Liberace Foundation. And so sometimes my job was to switch out the costumes that were on display. And so uh, thinking of Liberace's like giant feathered, you know, costumes, they we could only hang them for a certain amount of months because they were so heavy, they would start kind of pulling away at the mm -hmm. seams. And so a way to preserve that was, okay, well, this has been out in the light for three months. We got to put it back, you know, and, and bring something else out. So um, it's just, I, I think, I think when people start thinking of the tissue paper as more of something delicate and more precious, then they start thinking of actual ways that they can, you know, hold on to it a little longer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, good points. 
I want to move to a different subject now and talk about mm-hmm. your landscape work. Oh, sure. Not only do you do food and things of that nature, but you you're very interested in the concept of landscape and you've done many translations of painted landscapes into a piñata mm-hmm. and you've also done some responses to land art. So I'd love to get into all of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So okay. let's talk first um, about, how about talking about your show at the Berman Museum, where it seemed yeah. to me there were a lot of landscape um, pinatifications, and then you were making an installation. This was in 2018. That was a walk-in sort of pinata. It had a blue sky over you and everything. Yeah, that was a that was fun. My shoulders are still in pain from that. <laughs> from putting it on the wall. No, it was so it was such a cool it was such a cool project because the Berman really did support me in anything I wanted to do and I said, "You know what? I've never done a ceiling before. Let's do it." And and we figured out a way to do it, which was so cool. The show at the Berman was a big installation at the base of the museum and then on on one of their top floor galleries I had a landscape show um and it was really uh inspired by the artist Jose Maria Velasco who was a uh, 19th century Mexican painter that really his work was the symbol of the nation for a very long time and what interests me about these paintings are not only the beauty of them cuz you know I think landscapes are just the paintings that are just revered pretty much in all cultures, right? Uh, you know, when people started putting pigment to canvas, uh, they wanted to see themselves and they wanted to see the beauty of nature. And so um, it's a way to really capture that. But again, once you start doing a little more research on these paintings, um, uh, they were a little bit more sinister than I thought. They were, you know, they were postcards to advertise Mexico during the colonization of of Mexico. So they would send these paintings out to world expos uh, to say, look at all this land, just right for the picking, come and set up your, come and set up your industry here. So a lot of those landscape paintings had just the beginning of villages and towns and cities in Mexico. Um, And a lot of them, uh, I would say were very exoticized in the, the vegetation um, and and the way that the landscape was kind of laid out uh, compared to maybe what those places would have looked like in real life. Um, and I think that's that's something that I really find interesting because before really digging into Jose Maria Velasco's work, I never really thought about landscape paintings as a tool of colonization. But when you start thinking about it, it's like I'm painting that, you know, a lot of art, a lot of the mentality is like, all right. Uh, I'm I'm doing a painting of this landscape and therefore it's a little bit of ownership over that landscape because you were the first to really document it in that way. And everything after that is just really in response to the original painting, right? And so it's a very interesting subject that I didn't think was going to be so interesting, you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, and and then that carries on to my bigger installations because... Um, a lot of these installations have figures, like smaller 
people in the foreground to kind of show you scale. And I always wanted to feel like I was in one of those paintings. So I started to make these paintings really large scale to the point where they were they were kind of just taking over a room and you were really engulfed in them, which is a really a really strange but really fun feeling and experience. Yeah, that's great. So um let's talk also about monuments because mm. I I listened to a wonderful YouTube podcast that had you speaking with your friend Emmanuel Ortega. Um, and it was a lot about land art and landscape, painting and art, and who owns the land and who's got the right to make the work. And you talked about mon uh, monuments also. So yeah. you want to talk about the land art monuments near where you grew up in yeah. Nevada and your response yeah. to them? Yeah, I... I... Yeah, land art to me um, is fascinating. And along the lines of minimalist art, I remember learning about that in school and thinking, wow, like the audacity of these white men to make this cube and call it art or to dig a hole in the ground and call it art, right? And so just the idea of, of, these, of these people reshaping the land and claiming that they're doing they're actually you know that it's actually art i mean obviously it is it's been documented it's thought of that within the institution that is the art world and so i always i always uh kind of think back to the same ideas behind the landscape paintings is like what are they doing are they are they an agent of colonization um, or are they really celebrating the landscape? So are, is land art celebrating the land or is it just uh, a piece to like fill somebody's ego, you know? And so um, I started doing these performances called Family Fiestas um, many years ago with my family. And the original idea of them was to, uh, to take over spaces and use them and, uh, and, and kind of the old tradition of the happenings uh, back in the 60s, right? Of just something happening and you had to be there to, to witness it, to be part of the art piece. And if you weren't, oh, well, you know? And um, I, I did a few of them at different museums, um, really kind of challenging the notions of, of institutional inclusion, right? Like who is a museum actually for? Most museums have like these beautiful lawns and parks, you know? Um, but uh, most of the time, they're not really enjoyed because they're just meant to kind of be these sterile places. And so when I think of land art, it's almost the same thing, right? And so Michael Heiser uh, has a lot of work in Nevada. And one of the pieces is uh, one, of his, one of his first in 1970, double negative, where he dug two canyons out of the old mesa near Overton, at Nevada. And he... Uh, and, and it's been there for many, many years, kind of falling apart. It doesn't look like a nice, clean cut anymore. It's That's what the work's about, you know, entropy and all that. And so I thought, what would it be like if I brought my family here and we use the space like a park or just to have fun and through a party? And so my family knowing nothing about land art and we really just took over the space and had a really fun day. And 
now that that place has a different meaning to me. Now it's a place where we had a party and that is the art piece to me now, you know? So it's a really, it's a really kind of cheeky, but also like serious way of reclaiming space um, that was once ours. Yeah. Wow. I hear that. Uh, And your family was, were they happy? What are, what is their experience of these fiestas? Well, when they're so double negative, that was a challenge because it wasn't tied to an institution and it it was just kind of, we just went out there and did it. And so it was just really, my family's very supportive. So uh, they don't really ask questions. They just say, all right, what do you need us to do? Okay, I'll bring the grill. I'll bring the drink. You know, everybody has their, you know, assignments and uh, they just went out and helped. But when we get to travel to museums now, it's, it's really fascinating because at first they quite didn't understand what was going on and what this was about. And that's one thing that I wanted to make sure that I wanted my family to be in on the joke. I wanted them to be in on, on, on the piece and, and be a part of it and actually collaborate with me on the work. And that's actually exactly what happened. Uh, You know, one of my aunts always is in charge of decorations. One of them is always coordinating our outfits one of my uncles is always in charge of the food. My cousin loves to make sure that she does the pinata, you know, so everybody has a job now and it's become a family tradition. So now every year um, they're just like, Justin, where are you going to take us this year to do a family fiesta? You know, so it's become really uh, it, it's become a family tradition and um, in a way really kind of brought us closer because because I'm in charge of this one thing that we do um, kind of like the social hierarchies in my family are completely, uh, you know, just put in a blender and, and, you know, the kind of the, the normal roles for the male, you know, for, for the men and the women have, are kind of switched around. And, it, and I, I have seen that that has affected our relationships in real life when, um, when, you know, especially I, I know a lot of Latino or immigrant families uh, know this experience is like when, when you go to a, a, a barbecue, you know, the men sit over here, drink beer and talk and the women are over here cooking and, you know, and I, I definitely noticed a difference in how we interact after that, which is uh, very touching. And I didn't realize that's what was going to happen with this artwork. That's amazing. It's almost like you're doing a social practice project with just the community that is your family. Exactly. Which is exactly. wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's a new thought about social practice art. It's great. Precisely. Yeah. So where are you going to take the fiesta this year? Do you have a place yet? Uh, I don't have any fiestas confirmed yet, but I am working on it. Um, you know, the pandemic kind of threw us for a loop. So I think maybe 2023 will be the will be the restart of the family fiesta. But, um, you know, I, I hope to, yeah, I hope to do more in the future. And I think they're coming for sure. Good. I hope so too. Well, let me just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. It's been a lovely conversation and I'm so deeply grateful for you to be here today. So thank you. I've been speaking with Justin Favela. Thank you, Justin. Oh, and where are you speaking to us from? I'm in Las Vegas at my studio. Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll see you in cyberspace again, I'm sure. And I hope you can bring a fiesta to Philadelphia. That yes. Would be awesome. I would love that. I would love that. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you. Bye bye.